find yourself living in a shotgun shack. And you may find yourself in another part of the world. And you may find yourself behind the wheel of a large automobile. And you may find yourself in a beautiful house with a beautiful wife. And you may ask yourself, well, how did I get here? Letting the days go by, letting the water hold me down, letting the days go by, water flowing underground, into the blue again, after the money's gone, once in a lifetime, water flowing underground, and you may ask yourself, how do I work this? Ho, ho, how is it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to year two of Merry X-Labs, our, uh, I guess we can call it a tradition now that it is in its second year, so uh, it is an annual tradition now, wherein we take a break from the current year stuff, and uh, since we launched Essential X-Labs this year, I guess we're taking a break from the Silver Age stuff as well to uh, just uh, bebop through X-Men history here and celebrate the holiday season with our favorite characters. And you know, when we did this last year, um, it was kind of on a lark. It uh, kind of grown a little bit tired of what we were reading in the current year stuff, and uh, decided we needed a little bit of a break, and saw the uh, pending you know, Christmas holiday as an opportunity to uh, do just that, take a little bit of a break. I honestly can't remember exactly where we were if we were to jump back to last year and uh, where we were in the X-lapsed process at that point. But I certainly do remember that this, you know, sort of kind of week off was uh, most welcome at the time. And here we sit, you know, about to jump into uh, Destiny of X, the next phase, the post-Hickman phase of uh, the X-Men family of books here. And I feel like we're in this age of, uh, I don't know, like information overload. We're getting so much information about these new titles. It feels like it's almost too much. So once again, I feel like a break is a... Uh, is very much in order, uh, as just to not be burned out from all the information we're getting. So, lucky for us, we've got plenty of holiday-themed stories to talk about for the next several days. So, let's hop right into the first one here, and this one was a, a leftover from last year. And by now you guys know me and how I couldn't read a calendar if my life depended on it, so I wasn't sure how many days Mary X-Lapse was going to go. So, we had extra books, and uh, we're going to start attending to them right now. The first book in Merry X-Labs 2021 will be Uncanny X-Men number 230, which had a June 1988 cover date. The story is called Twas the Night, written by Chris Claremont with pencils by Mark Silvestri. Inks Joe Rubenstein, or Rubenstein. Colors Glynis Oliver. Letters Tom Orzachowski, Orzachowski, however you say that word. Edits Nocente and DeFalco, cover price $1, which is the cover price right before the one I came in with uh, at $1.25. But uh, let's get to it here. We are in the Outback. This is the Outback era, and we open with Storm soaring through the skies above the Outback, enjoying her newly returned powers. She reports down to Madeline Pryor about how great it feels to fly once more before kicking us off into our next phase, which is... Uh, well, it's not the danger room, but it's a training session all the same. Now, Maddie is playing the role of a, like, Krakoan sage, kinda? I don't know. She's manning a crazy command center, one that was left by the former owners or occupiers of this location, the Reavers. Now, with this, she figures she could probably tap into any computer network on the planet. That's just how high-tech it is. So, let's do the uh, danger roomish sort of thing. 
We've got Rogue, who's going to serve as interloper, I suppose, and it's up to the rest of the team to stop her. Now, Rogue zips by a nearby mesa upon which Gateway sits, and Gateway is, of course, the aboriginal teleporter with the bolo, who, you know, he swings it and opens the ports. Uh, he was left here when the Reavers were run out. Now, she sweeps down to the base where Havoc takes aim and lets fly with a blast. You see, Madeline has been tracking Rogue the whole time, so her arrival isn't an actual surprise. This is all part of the exercise. Now, Havoc's shot is a direct hit, but it doesn't stop her progress. Psylocke pops out of an alley to pull the, you know, purple butterfly hoodoo, which also really doesn't slow Rogue down all that much. Dazzler's up next, and she fires a solid light photon blast at Rogue, and she does that cool thing where she kind of makes like a finger gun and, and fires it off that way. Now, this takes our target off her game, and she flip-flops from the sky right into Colossus's waiting arms. Now, he slams her to the ground by her wrists and pins her down until Wolverine saunters on up and does, you know, that thing where he pops a claw on either side of their throat while threatening to run the middle right on through. And so, this training session ends. We next jump back to Madeline, who's congratulating the crew on a successful sesh before her thoughts go to her recently stolen son. Now... This is a bit muddy for me. It's been a long, long time since I've read anything from this era, but I want to say that she believes that the Marauders have little baby Nate and not X-Factor, because I'm pretty sure X-Factor believes that the X-Men are dead right now, and uh, this is all out of the Fall of the Mutants story. Um, Now, a sort of kind of footnote promises that uh, this will be a story for yet another time. Now, as the dust continues to settle, Dazzler wonders where Longshot might have gotten off to. And so we head into the caverns under the base to find out. So we've got Longshot walking along with a torch, claiming that there's something down here that's been calling out to him. And this is going to be kind of a theme for a few of these Merry X-Labs episodes, things calling out. We'll, We'll get there, though. Now, he happens across a barred door, which he kicks in. And on the other side, he finds the Reaver's treasure cave. Now, it's like a whole bunch of gold, goodies, and loot that the Reavers had stolen over the years. There's also a bunch of ghosts swooping around, though I'm pretty sure we're not actually supposed to be able to see them. Longshot picks up a golden bracelet, which triggers his psychometric powers to kick in. He can suddenly see the entire history of the piece, how it was given as a symbol of love from a man to a woman, but then it was stolen away. It's as though the pieces are speaking to Longshot, and hell, for all I know, they are. It's been a real long time since I've read any, you know, Longshot. Now, these pieces are sort of kind of begging or asking to be returned to their rightful owners. This causes Longshot to kind of lose it. You know, he gets overwhelmed by all these voices, all of these pieces, uh, you know, activating his psychometric or psychometry, however we say that word, his powers. (laughs) And uh, he kind of lashes out at the pile of jewelry, claiming that, you know, none of this is his fault. And, I mean, he's not wrong, but the pieces will not relent. Now, Longshot is driven back into, like, the fetal position almost, crying and, and, you know, saying that it's too much for him to bear and how much it actually physically hurts him. And from here, we jump to another day, where Dazzler is attempting to clean up her room. Now, you see, the Reavers, as you might imagine, were friggin' disgusting. And as such, they left the place... I think calling it a complete mess would be selling it short here. It's very, very gross. Now, Allie reaches under her bed, and uh, what she finds down there causes her to let out a tremendous shriek. Now, this causes Colossus to come barreling in through the doorway, but still breaking off great big chunks of wall anyway. Which, I mean, I'm sure we're not worried about property values or anything, but 
I mean, you were walking through the door. You didn't need to take huge chunks. I don't know. We'll we'll we'll, we'll just let it go. Uh, now Colossus does this in order to see what the hubbub's all about. Now he checks under the bed and he pulls out. I'm not sure if this is supposed to be anything specific, but it's like a great big wad or a chunk of like yellow ooze. So. I don't know what this is supposed to be. Maybe it's just a wand of generic nastiness. Whatever the case, Allison is not happy to see it, as you might imagine. She next heads out to the balcony and has a light-fueled temper tantrum where she cries out that it would, it's all, this, this whole situation is almost enough for her to wish that they'd actually really died. Which, I mean, Allison is dramatic. You know, that is you know, part of her character. Now, down on the ground, Wolverine, Havoc, and Storm watch this whole thing play out. And it's here where I'm kind of reminded of how uh, Silvestri kind of gets a pass when we talk about the, you know, the image founders. Like, Silvestri's usually the one that we look at. It's like, oh, yeah, he was great. You know, he, we can't think of anything bad to say about his work. You know, even Jim Lee, who is, you know, technically proficient, does some beautiful artwork, often gets criticism about his characters being overly, you know, posed, right? Now, Silvestri here, this is not... Some good looks here uh, We got Wolverine, he's bare-chested and wearing like an awkward cowboy hat I'm pretty sure that's the one that Jubilee will eventually get But I mean, it just looks bad And Havoc, for whatever reason, is dressed like a janitor I don't understand it Now Storm is there, of course And she figures that, now that she's got her powers back She may as well use them to improve the X-Men's quality of life And so she hits the skies, whoops up a torrential downpour, and floods all the filth out of the Reaver's old compound. Havoc then helpfully uh, incinerates all the garbage and filth and guck that uh, shoots out the other end. And we zoom out a little bit, and we find out that Gateway is watching this whole thing play out. Now our heroes note Gateway's presence, and they chat about what his story might be. Rogue decides that, hey, I'm going to try to find out. So she heads up to this Mesa and has a picnic lunch with him. Now, he doesn't say or eat anything, but Rogue chats him up all the same. Back inside, Dazzler wraps up a storm-fueled shower. You see, the water isn't hooked up, but uh, she's using, you know, Storm's storm. She finds out here that Longshot has woken up. Apparently, he's been asleep for days. And I hope they remembered to pull him out of the building before Storm flooded it, because that... Nah, that wouldn't be great. Uh, with tears in his eyes, Longshot says he feels much better now, especially after having seen Allie. Now, as the rest of the team gathers around, he explains what happened to him upon discovering the Reaver's treasure cache. Alex and Logan make some jokey remarks about Longshot's psychometric powers, like, uh, you know, yeah, sure, whatever, they talk to you. Now, Betsy tells them, hey, this is a real thing, and we're going to prove it. And so Rogue is sent off to the caves to fetch a piece of jewelry, which Longshot will... Psychometer, I guess uh, While Betsy oversees the entire thing To make sure old Mullethead doesn't get overwhelmed again So, almost immediately Rogue returns with a gaudy-looking necklace from the stash Longshot and Betsy do some butterfly stuff And we can see the story of the piece Now you see it was bought by a father for his daughter And then it was passed down for generations Until the Reavers stole it So the question is What can our heroes do about this? Or maybe the question is, should they do anything at all? Well, Longshot's got a suggestion, and it's to, uh, well, get this, return every single stolen valuable back to its original owner. Colossus and Wolverine think this is pretty ridiculous. This is just a bad idea. And, well, I, I'm not sure that they're exactly wrong. 
Alex asks Logan if he thinks that they should just keep the loot. You know, are we entitled to keep it? We took the place. Is this ours now? And Logan says, hey, it's not about that. It's not about keeping anything. It's more about just having better things to do than return all of this stuff. I mean, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of pieces here that they would have to return, like, globally. I mean, there's a, there's a, lot, of, uh, a lot of stuff here. Now, Longshot pleads with Wolverine to reconsider, suggesting that this could be an opportunity for the X-Men to right one last Reaver wrong. Betsy, unsurprisingly, agrees with Longshot. Wolverine warns that, hey, if this whole thing goes caca, their whole being-on-the-run pretending-to-be-dead plot goes boobs up. All eyes turn to Storm, who is in charge and has the final say, and she says they are gonna do this. She admits it's not practical, but she considers it necessary all the same. So next we know, we're in the pit, gathering and sorting the loot. Now they've got six piles for six different continents, and this had to have taken friggin' forever. I mean, Longshot and Psylocke had to study each and every piece. And I tell you what, this place is beginning to look like Scrooge McDuck's money bin at this point. There is a lot of stuff here. Anyway, with this leg of the job done, a Dazzler spies something that catches her eye, and it's a shiny red motorbike. Now, she wishes that she could keep the thing, but, I mean, we got a mission in progress, so we gotta move on. So, how are our heroes going to return all this loot? Well, Rogue suggests that they rattle Gateway's cage a bit and see if he'll give him a hand. And, after a few awkward moments of silence with Gateway, the teleporter agrees. Psylocke uses some butterfly hoodoo to let Gateway know where they're headed, and we're off to the races. We spend the next couple of pages showing the X-Men returning the stolen goodies back to their rightful owners. We do take a detour to Salem Center, where the new mutants are all standing in the snow singing Christmas carols against their will. Headmaster Magneto is there, and uh, he kind of looks like a drill sergeant. He's, like, forcing these poor kids to be merry. Um, Now, Ilyana... She's there, and she mentions that it doesn't feel right to celebrate. It doesn't feel right to be festive, considering that Doug Ramsey just died. Storm is flying overhead, and she decides to make standing out in the cold a little less brutal for the kids. So she kills the wind and makes it so the sleet turns into a gentle shower of snow. Now Sam, upon feeling this change in the weather, decides they probably got one more carol in them to belt out. Next, we see Wolverine in Hong Kong, where he sees a wanted poster for the X-Men. A young punk rushes over to the poster and spray-paints the word live or live on it. I don't know if this is like the X-Men live in concert or just, you know, the X-Men are alive. Then we jump over to St. Andrew's Hospital in Boston, where Longshot returns that ugly necklace from earlier in the issue. And then he cries like a baby when its rightful owner discovers it. And you know, uh, Longshot sure seems to cry a lot, doesn't he? Finally, morning comes, and the mission was a complete success. We're back in the outback, where the X-Men come to the realization that... It's Christmas morning. Now, after sharing some holiday greetings, Wolverine presents Dazzler with that sleek red motorbike. So, I guess all you gotta do is wish you were dead in order to get what you want? Yeah, word to the wise, eh, kids? I mean, Christmas is coming up. So, um, you guys know how to get what you want now. So, Daz asks Longshot if he wants to go for a ride on, you know, the bike that didn't go back to its rightful owner. So, we know somebody out there isn't having quite that great a Christmas, relatively speaking. Anyway, while she's, you know, about to go on this ride, the rest of the X-Men exchange gifts? That did, didn't they just now realize it was Christmas? Oh well. Uh, Storm asks Wolverine if he still feels like this mission was a waste of time, and he admits that he was wrong. This takes us to our closing scene where Rogue visits Gateway yet again. And, well, it's, since it's Christmas, she's got a present for him, and it's a wooden flute. 
He doesn't really react, and so Rogue goes to leave, let him let him be by his lonesome here. She realizes and understands that he doesn't celebrate this holiday, or likely doesn't celebrate this holiday, and she, you know, decides to leave him be. But as she goes to leave, Gateway grabs her by the wrist and motions that she should sit beside him. And when she does, he proceeds to play his new flute. And that is where we leave it. So let's talk about this one um, with relative brevity, because uh, if the essential X last ever makes it this far, we'll, we'll go into greater depth when we have all the context. And uh, we'll also include things like the letters page and uh, maybe some ads in the bullpens, as, you know, as has become the norm for the Essentials program. But what do we got here? What did we have here? This is a, uh, I mean, this is a wonderful little issue, isn't it? Perhaps a little a little saccharine, right? A little syrupy sweet, but, uh, you know, sometimes you need that. Sometimes you need that. And I feel like, especially, uh, you know, the way we're reading the books nowadays, right? It doesn't feel so much, right? Actually, it doesn't feel at all like the X-Men are a family. In fact, the closest thing we get nowadays to the X-Men being a family was like that weird, uh, like, living dynamic at the Summer House when we started off Dawn of X, which, I mean, we even talked about it back then, was more eerie and, uh, dare I say, uncanny than anything else here. It didn't feel heartwarming. It didn't feel warm in any way. It felt very much like uh, like a controlled experiment of sorts. Very sterile, very weird, I mean... We even commented that Corsair, like, got that vibe. He's like, this, you know, this is weird. So in light of all that, it's, uh, you know, pretty darn uh, refreshing to see the X-Men acting somewhat like a family again. It's been far too long. Hopefully, hopefully one of these days we get back to this sort of a tone to the X-Books. I'm not expecting it anytime soon. But this sort of story is uh, very much missed, in my opinion, anyway. I... I wasn't reading the X-Books back at, during the Outback days, but uh, I feel like just the overall, you know, soap operatic tone of the Claremont run um, very much informed the Lobdell and Niciesa runs that, you know, I came in on. So for someone like me, this is very much the way an X-Men story should be. Is it perfect? Well, no, of course not. There, Believe it or not, despite the fact that uh, there are hundreds and thousands of 10 out of 10 ratings on comic books nowadays... There's no such thing as a perfect comic book. But it was very enjoyable and also quite comfortable. And those are two things that we uh, really can't say about too many comics uh, in, you know, present day. Let's briefly touch on the art before we uh, we cut on out of here for today. Um, it was Mark Silvestri, and uh, it was very uneven. I mean, there were some panels here that looked fantastic, and then there were others that looked not good, <laughs> not great. And I'm definitely talking about that scene with, uh, you know, bare-chested, uh, weird hat-wearing Wolverine and Havoc dressed like a janitor. Very, very ugly panels here. And hey, here's something that a lot of people don't talk about that they maybe should because, uh, you know, Mark's uh, peer over at Image, uh, Rob Liefeld, gets a lot of guff for not drawing feet. Well, guess who else doesn't draw feet? Or when he does, they look like spades. I guess pointing those things out about Mr. Silvestri's work doesn't get you all those clicks like they, like it does for Liefeld. Anyway, overall, I quite enjoyed this. I feel like it's a, um, a fairly timeless issue of X-Men here. Of course, there is some context you probably ought to know going into it. You know, the X-Men faked their own deaths, or they took advantage of a situation wherein they were able to keep themselves under the radar for a time. Um, 
Baby Nathan has been separated from his mother. The X-Men just fought the Reavers and took over their compound. Storm just got her powers back. I mean, there are things you might want to know in order to help follow ability of the story, but with a story like this, that's not really necessary. Of course, it helps with context, but it isn't something you absolutely need in order to get the very most out of a story like this. Uh, very heartwarming and, uh, as mentioned, maybe a little too syrupy sweet, but uh, definitely one that I think is worth your time. But I think that's going to do it for today. Um, if anybody out there has any thoughts on these Christmas issues or has a Christmas issue to recommend, I would love to hear from you. You can find me several, several different ways. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, Instagram at 90sXmen. You can send an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Or you can call into the X-Lapsed voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. For blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can also join us at the Facebook group, 90sXmen. Of course, the complete audio archives are available at chrisandreggie.podbean.com or by searching up Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill on your favorite search engine or podcast aggregation application. And finally, the Patreon is patreon.com slash xlapsed if you'd like to throw any support my way and get some exclusive content and behind-the-scenes stuff. Definitely feel free to check that out. But I think that's going to do it for now. I'd like to thank you all so much for sharing some of your holiday season with me. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. Inside your heart